0: On this episode, we have an extended interview with Anifiuk Ekpudem to discuss his incredible new book, Where We Come From. Set between communities in South London, South Wales and the West Midlands, Neef's book documents the rise of UK rap and grime. It begins with the tenacious community hubs of Pirate Radio in Birmingham under the guiding hand of Cecil Morris and runs all the way up to the emergence of artists such as Stormzy and Dave. It's a book that explores and celebrates the key role that immigration plays in invigorating and progressing our shared cultural landscape, and it's one that's deeply in love with the music that it chronicles. It was great to sit down with Neef and hear more about where we come from, so I started by asking him if he could tell us a little bit more about why he chose to start the book in Birmingham and the work of Cecil Morris.
1: Yeah, it was uh, Cecil Morris, he uh, ran this pirate radio station called People's Community Radio Link, also known as PCRL. And um, he was, came to to England from Jamaica, I believe in the 50s, uh, and settled in Birmingham at a time when, I guess, he was part of the Windrush generation essentially. And when he got to Birmingham, he realised that there was just no space for Caribbean people to hear their music or to have their music played. Um, on the radio and he went up to the BBC and was like asked for a show that they can have their own music played on and it kind of got laughed out of the building he went to the other radio station which I think was BRMB at the, the other commercial radio station at the time and they did the same thing and he thought why well I'm just gonna start my own station um, and play music for my community essentially and that's where PCRL was born. And it was also born at the same around the same times as the Handsworth riots in 81 and 85, 1981 and 1985. What became clear was that I guess the community needed a voice for what was happening um in the area at the time. There was a lot of police brutality, unemployment was super high, uh, young people were in need essentially. And the radio station became became kind of a holding space for the community in that sense. Uh the reason I chose to start the book there was although I guess on the face of it, the the book is A Social History of UK Rap and Grime, I was really interested, perhaps more so interested in the communities, some of the communities that birthed the music in West Midlands. The West Midlands was one of the places that I um, settled on and focused on in the book. And when I really thought, where does the music begin here in Birmingham? It starts with, where does the community in in Birmingham begin? And that Windrush generation that came to the city in the 40s and 50s and 60s is at the root of that. And as I started to do some reporting in Birmingham and ask people about, um, I guess like in foundational community spaces and places PCRL, PCRL would come up a lot with especially with a lot of the rappers and grime MCs. they would say oh like my, my auntie used to listen to PCRL in the car or my dad used to listen to it or um, my mum would have it on at home all the time so once I heard like that a few, a few times I was like okay this sounds like a really important piece of the city's history that maybe hasn't been documented in that way uh, so that was the reason I chose to start there and it was just amazing to see and here, when I spoke, sat with Cecil to hear about the, the story of the station, how he would scale tower blocks, I think he said over like 200, 300 tower blocks he used across the city in the end, um, had his station pulled down like 400, 500 times. But then not only would they play music, they would um, broadcast like funeral dates, they'd broadcast when people had, somebody had passed away in the community, they'd broadcast out on the radio station because at that time it would take a while for news to spread across um the region so you saw it became more than just a space of music it really became like a important place for the community they'd have talk radio shows about their space um in british society essentially and what they felt was going wrong and when they needed what they could do to i guess try and improve and help their position um they would have like birthday parties all of these kind of things so it was a it's a really beautiful story of the station, and I'm yeah, really happy that I was able to write about it in the book. was there
0: was there a big group of people around him doing it because I was really struck reading that first chapter about his tenacity, but he just but mm. like you were saying it would get pulled down countless times and it would just come back on.
1: Yes, I think he was central to it, but there were definitely a lot of people around him, and there was a lot of djs de- they had like a big revolving cast of DJs that would be on the station. Um, and then as the station began to grow, I think it got so big that um, it started eating into the audience of like the BBC, West Midland station and the other commercial station, which is kind of like why I guess in the end it was prosecuted um, with such, I guess, viciousness because they could see the popularity of it. But I say that all to say that, yeah, he had a big group of people around him, producers, DJs, started to have um talk shows from people in Gambia, talk shows from people from, I guess, like the South Asian community that were in Birmingham at the time, because they were going through a similar thing of not being able to have a voice. Uh, so it was a really big station. I think also the support of the people was something that he really had too. Uh, he meant, one thing he mentioned to me was that there was such a hunger for the station amongst the local community that, people would offer with pirate radio stations like they usually broadcast out of like flats and stuff like that in in tower blocks so he'd have people tell him like ah oh, like this tower block this flat is about to be vacant so you can use this one or people that are I guess like sent but employed by the council to look after the tower blocks would give him the spare keys to be like oh this flat's vacant so you can set up in there or people would warn him that oh like um the the police or um the DTI who uh, I guess uh would a branch of the government set up to like kind of prosecute pirate radio stations and take them down. He'd get warnings from like local people that are oh, like the DTI were around here today or the DTI installed a camera here today. Um so be wary. And then so he was able to kind of keep um the station on air by the community's kind of help too, which was a really beautiful thing. Yeah, amazing.
0: You set the book out in three distinct sections. There's South London and um, South Wales and then the West Midlands. How did you settle on those three
1: sections? Yeah, with uh, with the book, with Where We Come From, I was really intent on, uh, as much as talking about the history of the music, I really wanted to give a vivid portrayal of modern Britain today and to really study the landscape of the country that we live in and to really um, excavate that in a way. And so when I, with that intention in mind, I was like, okay, I definitely need to, to leave London because I, I guess a lot of the stories around the music is... Often so London centric, and I'd seen I'd been outside of London for like my journalism work, so I'd seen how big a hold the music had outside of the capital. So I was like, I definitely want to leave London. Um, and I knew a few people in Birmingham, so I was like, okay, the West Midlands sounds interesting as a place to start with, and then beyond that, I was like, if I'm really really serious about trying to document life in modern britain i have to leave england so i was like uh, I so i then thought about i went to scotland a few times but the i guess the stories there didn't quite work with the theme of the book in the end but um i went to wales and immediately found like this amazing like rich history of of music of migration of black communities of ethnic communities in cardiff and in newport which was so perfect with the kind of book that i was trying to write mm. I was really struck by within all of those communities,
0: the kind of recurring theme of determination and Mm. the kind of tension that existed with success in that. It made me think about how a lot of the communities that you're chronicling have in some way been let down by central government. And that the offer that they're given is that they can rise out of their community, but not with it. And that puts Mm. a lot of responsibility on these very young artists at times.
1: Mm. Could
0: you could you talk a little, is that fair, do you think, Nathan? Could you talk a little bit about that responsibility that those artists carry?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because, yeah, definitely the the more I started to research and speak to people in these different areas, part of especially being such a big example of that, you'd realise, like, how much the politics of, say, the 70s, 80s and 80s had had, had had a direct impact on those children who grew up in the 90s and, and I guess, like, 2000s. I know in Cardiff, uh, with like the industrialization in Wales and that kind of almost revamping what Wales was in that time period, they had like a big referendum. They like devolved from um, Westminster, and there was meant to be this idea of like a new Wales and a new Cardiff. And then you quickly realize that that dream didn't filter down to to everybody. And there were like big parts of the cities, uh, the working class parts of Cardiff, especially like the south and east of the city, that didn't receive any benefits from that, um, I guess, rev- evolution of, of modern worlds in that way. And then you see that like, unemployment sets in, schooling is bad, um, all of these things. And then the music is a product um, of that, in a sense. And so you, I quickly got a sense of how connected the politics was to um, the music. And I think that then, as you say, with people then trying to rise up out of the circumstances they found themselves in, puts like a distinct tension on, I guess, feeling like you need to leave the place that you were born in um, to have a sense, to find a sense of, I guess, peace in your life. And uh, and especially if you're then trying to be a successful musician, feeling like you need to leave that place in order to do that. So I think, yeah, that's a very fair um comment and it's something that came up in the book quite a lot because with some of the environments people were growing up in, there's a guy, uh, Desper, in the book who grows up in Walsall, and or a town just outside Warsaw, and very similar thing like the like um, the decline that's set in in like a in an industrial West Midlands town essentially, and the offshoot of that is not just like unemployment and stuff like that, but he has like there's a lot of trauma that happens in his early life, and then so he comes to associate his hometown with like all of these traumatic experiences, and so then doesn't feel that's a place that he actually wants to stay in. So I think the the relationship that. Uh, the complicated relationship people have with where they're from was such a recurrent theme in the book. And then feeling like they may need to leave that either to find success in music or just to find a sense of peace within themselves was something that came up to. I was really
0: struck actually with Desper's story towards the mm. end after you've been out with him and his family for the day. And then he sees some younger artists that he's working with. And there is that kind of relationship where he's passing on a lot of accrued wisdom, and it, and I think that was one of the things in the in the book that really resonated with me was the generational support.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's one thing I really wanted to capture in the book was that this idea that well, I guess now because UK rap is so visible and you have so many visible success stories, you have people like Stormzy and Dave are like among the most popular musicians in the country. And outside of that, just amongst the most, like, recognisable faces in the country, like, they are that popular now and the music is that popular, people like Little Sims too. And um, that is, like, great, but I wanted to show that that isn't, like, that wasn't an accident, like, there wasn't, like, a, a... like a spontaneous thing that just happened and these individuals managed to erupt into like public consciousness. Like that's been a process of, as you say, like generational building and advice that's gone on for 60, 70 years that laddered into a moment like we have, into a movement and a scene that we have today. That was really important um, for me to show, I would say. And then also to show, as you say, people like Desper's story, to show that the legacy of the music isn't just like millions of records sold and, headlining festivals and doing these kind of things, which are great, but there's a, also like a quieter legacy that lives in the personal lives of the people who have, I guess, been touched by the music and who have, who have shaped the music too. I really loved the DIY aspect
0: of all of this. It really felt, especially in the sort of the earlier years that you're chronicling at the beginning of the millennium, there's so much kind of, so many people just coming together and doing it for themselves.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the yeah, the DIY aspect is that I think at the very core of of the music, as we say, like someone like Cecil Morris, that starting the pirate radio station is that DIY ethic is there, and I think a lot of it comes from with the immigrant communities coming over to the UK, having to essentially build something from nothing, build a life from nothing, build a community from nothing, and I think like that ethic kind of passes down into the subsequent generations who then they themselves were building pirate radio stations and whatnot, or they were um in in South London, a big focus is on like the street DVDs that is capturing the music at the time. And you have like really young kids essentially starting recording like um films of their friends and of their local community and really time stamping their era. I think that was such a beautiful thing too. Um so yeah, the DIY aspect is is there throughout all of it. And I think the music kind of sits at the bedrock of that almost. I'd never seen th- things like Lord of the Mics before.
0: And uh, mm-hmm. I kind of spent a couple of evenings going down some YouTube rabbit holes and saw the one <laughs> of in Jammer's basement with um, Wiley and Kano on the stairs and all that stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And you kind of get the you get the feeling of the excitement of people living in the future, in in a mm. sense that they're creating the future around themselves. And that that happens very rarely in music. That a new genre mm-hmm. emerges and people are at the forefront of that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I think a lot of it is when I'd speak to them, and even as you say, like, I grew up watching stuff like Lord of the Mics and Practice Hours and these kind of DVDs, and I think a lot of it is they didn't realise that at the time what they were creating, it was almost just, like, instinct and inadvertent um, creativity in young people that was creating a movement, but I think a lot of it was that that was almost just, like, a rite of passage, like, that's what you do. A lot of them, their parents or older cousins may have like ran sound systems or were garage MCs or were jungle MCs. So it was almost like a kind of inherited um, birthright in a way, like in terms of you perform music in this way. And I guess like what would happen is I guess every generation would slightly evolve the sound and make it into their own distinct, slightly distinct things. So something like um jungle is something like garage was a bit different from jungle. And then grime is a bit different from garage. And then obviously like UK rap more comes in after that. So it's like every generation was putting their own spin on it, but like the, the core ethics of it, of forming music, of writing music, of um, performing live as well, was like such a big element that was just such a big part of the community and the culture that it was something that people almost picked up by osmosis. Like the people that are now really successful and even the people in the book, they're just a handful of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids who were participating and practising music in the same way. Many who probably just went on to get like normal jobs and lived in not like quite normal um lives but they that was something they still participated in at at an early age
0: one of the things that i wanted to ask you about was that often grime is kind of portrayed as a cause of violence rather than its depiction and Mm. i was wondering if you could talk a little bit neith about the impact of that psychologically on the people that are involved in the music The, the kind of i guess the barriers that they face and the challenges that they face
1: yeah that that as you say that link crime and UK rap always i guess and you, you take it back to like garage and java all i guess stigmatized as a cause for i guess like either youth violence or gun violence and gun crime and then the funny thing is i think is that obviously now we're at a point where like this the causes of these things have been so well studied and so meticulously studied that you can read papers and papers in university papers and and they've been debated in parliament and the causes are always all the same it's like um like social exclusion poverty cut the cut in the youth budgets and social services budgets and all of these things that there is actually um people are very like well if you ask any expert they're very well aware of what causes um like youth violence and whatnot and yeah the reason is never like the music that people are listening to but i think it becomes, um, the music becomes an easy scapegoat, especially with like, I guess some of these things, especially with the music, I guess, vocalises it in such, in sometimes like such a crude um, and um, in your face kind of way. And I think that probably makes like politicians and, and whatnot, A, like uncomfortable, but also like scared that the the these social and economic factors that have been hovering over these young people and is now manifesting in stuff like violence, um, is is like in front of everybody's face. It's not just something that's concealed in like these communities where people are living. And then I think because we know the causes and then probably the solutions are there, I think the easy way is to then scapegoat the music because that kind of takes away the finger pointing at you and then kind of you kind of point it at somebody else. Um, in terms of the impact, I would say that it had on and has on musicians. I think a big thing was um, with the music then being censored in a, a lot of ways and shackled in a lot of ways, and discriminated in a lot. It's discriminated against in a lot of ways. It just made it really difficult for people to like kind of make a livelihood off something, mm-hmm. and to even begin to imagine that you could make a livelihood off, um, off grime, off, of being a DJ, of being an MC. I remember uh, people in the book telling me when I was interviewing them, telling me that at one point shows in Birmingham were getting shut down consistently um, by the police and whatnot. And then what it ha- what happens is that there's almost like a a loss of hope because. The way any musician, regardless of genre, starts their their early career is performing at a time. Anyway, maybe in those times, maybe it's slightly different now. Social media, but back then would be you'd be performing in front of small crowds, and you slowly build up your audience and build up your confidence, and you then pr- progress to bigger crowds and whatnot. But the shackling of the genres essentially stripped that live element away and stripped that starting block away, which means it's difficult for you to even imagine having a music career if the very first thing you need to do, which is go out and perform, you actually can't do. Um, So I think that was like a big impact. And I think also then, it sparks even further creativity in people in ways of trying to get around um, that censorship in a way, which I think when we talk about resistance and the DIY nature of things, I think, again, sits at like the heart, heart of the genre is people trying to find creative ways around the kind of roadblocks that have been put in front of them.
0: Yeah, I thought you really captured that with the story of um, Parsalu and Hillfields and also Dave, like you say, is one of the most recognisable musicians in the UK now. Nif, I wanted to ask you about the things that UK grime and rap have done to remain true to its roots. Yeah,
1: as you say, like when the genres became like really successful and really visible, they inevitably start to change like things like money come into it of course the visibility the different uh, avenues to performing and playing like venues all across the world also starts to happen and so the music starts to um I guess change in a way um and I think naturally it then becomes more popular too you get more people participating in it because it's not no longer just a hobby it's also something that can now be like a actual vocation and a livelihood so that process that we're seeing has been interesting I think um The beautiful thing I think is that the genre is like really becoming really popular at a time when social media was kind of like tearing down barriers to entry for musicians was quite an important thing because then it meant that there was no need to necessarily conform to an industry standard in a way. Uh, you could just express yourself on your own terms and the music can still make its way around the world and circle around um, the world in that way too, which I think has been really important. And I think also the one thing I think is important and I think is important in any like artistic culture is having people who are almost um, extremists to their art, like they refuse to compromise because I think having those like individuals there like sets a standard for everybody else so even if there are people who are maybe going to compromise a little bit or they're going to slightly make a slightly more commercial music like that those group of extreme artists i say who are really pure to their art are uh, there and visible and popular and sets a reminder and a standard for everybody else to follow and I think UK rap has like a lot of those individuals I think like Kano is such a great example of that of not compromising and I think you see like the kind of tree of artists that then not come from him, but clearly inspired by him. Like people like Little Sims and Lil Canner are clearly inspired uh, by his work. And then uh, as uncompromising in their work too. I think somebody like Hot Paper, who's the rapper from Barking, is another similar example. Like has been really steadfast to telling his truth in the most in as authentically as he can. And you can see, like, the ripples of that then spread throughout the rest of the music scene, too. So I think that's been a really important thing in having those individuals who who are really committed to um, to the art of it, uh, as well as... especially as it the music then becomes like an industry in itself.
0: It's been really lovely meeting you. Thank you so much for taking the time, Lee.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. No, thank you for the time. I appreciate it.
0: Where We Come From is published by Faber and Faber. It's a great read and is, as they say, available in all good bookshops. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with Mahogadi on Fela Mahkene and her incredible short story collection Innards. But until then, big love.